All right, well, as you're taking your seat, let me also encourage you to grab your Bibles and open up to Ephesians chapter 5, to the passage that was just read for us. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll continue our journey through this little letter that's tucked away in the middle of the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5. Now, it's really good to be with you this afternoon for many reasons. I always look forward to gathering with you Sunday after Sunday, and, and um, but my soul especially needs it today. Uh, my soul especially needs the grace that is available to us in gathering together to sing the gospel and to speak the gospel and to see the gospel when we go and partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, of course, I need the gathering every week, but my need for this gathering is especially pronounced right now uh, because on a personal level, this past week has been, has been really challenging. Uh, it's been a tough week for a variety of reasons. Most notably is that my wife and I put our house on the market to uh, move into a place not too far from where we are now to uh, provide a little bit more space for my family of five. And so we took a lot of stuff out of the house and we put it in storage, but we also took a lot of stuff and we put it in the basement of our house to begin showing so it's staged and all those types of things. Well, it didn't take long for people to realize that that house was sitting vacant and nobody was there. And so this past week, uh, some folks began to break in and play in our basement a little bit. And uh, they would go into the basement, apparently sleep there during the night, but also pillage the supplies and the things that they wanted from our basement to take for themselves. And we learned about it after about two or three nights of them doing this. And so when we went, the basement was just trashed and lots of items were gone. And so we went in and we cleaned it up knowing that viewing was happening the day that we learned about it and all this stuff. And so we're cleaning up the basement, getting it back organized. We work hard to get it secure and locked. And then that night after we left, they came, and I guess they were frustrated that the basement was now secure. And so they broke into the main living space, and they went through the main living space taking all kinds of things. Um, the saddest item of which would have been was my wife's wedding ring. And so it, it was a very tough week as we think about some of those things. And so my wife and I have been living with uh, friends for the past couple of weeks, me, me and Kim and our kids, as, we, as we've been kind of prepping to sell our, house, our home. And just being just kind of in a state of, of limbo, uh, you know, over time that creates stress and puts strain on relationships and all those types of things. And so not only do we have the house being kind of treated the way that it's been treated this past week, our our kids are facing some of the ordinary pressures that, that come with growing up and you start going to school and you experience social strain, learning to navigate friendships and relationships and, and, and mean people and nice people and trying to deal with that. So that puts a, another level of burden and stress upon us. And, and then quite frankly, this past week, that just kind of spilled over affecting Kim and I's relationship so that we were uh, not very kind and patient towards one another. We weren't treating each other with much love and kindness. We allowed stress and strain and all these other things to draw us away from each other so that we were bickering and, and fighting with each other a lot more than usual. So it's been a tough, tough week. And then on top of that, <laughs> my fantasy baseball team is struggling. So like... <laughs> Like half, half the players on my roster went into the DL this past week. And so that was a big, big problem too. And, and so while that was all going on, I began to think about our passage tonight. And I began to think about what Sundays represent. And as I began to think about what Sundays represent, the Lord just rekindled my convictions about the sacredness of Sunday. And the sacredness of gathering with God's people on a regular rhythm to do the things that we are doing together this afternoon. 
Now, I know that as followers of Jesus who believe that Jesus is risen, that he's reigning, he's ruling over all of life, we want to be very clear in saying that all of life is sacred, that there is no divide between the sacred and, and the secular. For the Christian, that divide doesn't exist. All of life is sacred, but not all of life is the same. So when you think about your daily rhythms, your week-to-week rhythms, it is true to say that every day is sacred for the Christian. Fridays are sacred. Wednesdays are sacred. And it is true that Sundays are sacred, but they are not sacred in the same way. Sundays occupy a unique form of sacredness in the rhythm of the Christian life and in the life history of the church in the world. It is on Sunday when the church began to gather together regularly to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the, uh, Paul would refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day. That this day should belong to the Lord in a unique sense. Meaning we do things on Sundays that we don't do on Fridays and that we don't do on Tuesdays. For one, we gather like this. So all of life is sacred, every day is sacred, but not all of life is the same and not every day is the same. Sunday is a sacred day and what it represents in the life and the rhythms of the Christian. And one of the ways that God has designed Sundays to work in our hearts is, is so that we might gather together in this space and, and find our hearts refreshed by the realities of the gospel. And when we find grace coming to us through all the things that we are doing over these next few moments, we are better equipped, we are better encouraged, we are better energized to live our lives Monday through Saturday. And so Sunday is a unique day in the life of the church. It's one that we want to, the sacredness of which we want to, to recapture. Because when we gather together to sing the gospel and speak the gospel and see the gospel, when we fellowship with one another in the ways that we're doing now, God intends for this time to rejuvenate the soul. He intends for these gatherings to provide grace for us to live by, grace for us to be refreshed by. This is why I need today's gathering particularly. I need the grace that's available to me in this moment. But one of the challenges that we're facing in our lives and I think in our culture is that when life gets hard or when life gets busy, the first thing we call out of our schedules and the first thing we call out of our rhythms is the Sunday worship gathering. Life is too busy. Life is too hard. I've got to sacrifice something. Gathering with the church seems to be one of the first things to go for lots of Christians. And I think that tendency is exposing a, a, an ignorance in the church as it relates to what Sunday gatherings represent and the grace that is available to us in the gathering, unlike in any other context that we're going to find ourselves in on a daily basis. And so we want to think about this tonight because when life gets hard and when life gets busy, the one thing we must not sacrifice is the time that we gather like this. And this isn't a unique temptation. I think every generation of Christians has struggled with this on some level, especially the first generation. The book of Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who were struggling to gather together because their newfound faith in Jesus was actually bringing a lot of problems into their lives. And many of them were turning back on their faith because uh, life was getting too hard for them. And the writer of Hebrews would call it out. And he calls it out in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. He says, and let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, meaning don't sacrifice this. Don't sacrifice gathering with other believers to explore the realities of the gospel. 
He says, don't neglect to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Press in, gather together because there is grace. There is grace available in the gathering of the church. And my prayer and my hope for us, the more we continue to gather together, is that the more we'll experience that reality. That this time would be a life-giving time, that it won't be a life-draining time. That this time will be something you look forward to as a follower of Jesus, to come together and sing the praises of Jesus and study the word of Jesus and partake in the Lord's Supper and other other ordinances together, that we would go after that. We would look forward to it. And what you're going to see in this passage, we would prepare ourselves for it on a weekly basis. So when you come to Ephesians chapter 5, what you're going to see is this passage that gets after a couple of things. A couple of ways in which God's grace is available to us in the gathering on Sundays like this. There are two particular things that I want to call your attention to tonight. Of course, there's a lot of grace that comes to us in gathering, but uh, there's two in particular that I want you to think about tonight. Beginning in verse 15, you're going to see how uh, when we gather together, we learn how to walk in wisdom. But one of the goals of gathering together week in and week out on a Sunday is to learn how to walk in wisdom together. Pick it up, verse 15. Verse 15 says, pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Learning to walk in wisdom and allowing the gathering to serve that purpose in our lives. There's a few phrases I want to call your attention to. The first phrase there is pay careful attention then to how you live. That word translated live could literally be translated walk. And walk is a major metaphor in the book of Ephesians illustrating and speaking to the life that we live as Christians. And all throughout the first half of chapter 5, we've heard Paul tell us to walk in certain kinds of ways. He began by telling us to walk in love. Last week we learned about what it means to walk in light. And today we're talking about walking in wisdom. How do we walk wisely as we journey through the world that is? Well, he says we do this by learning to pay attention, by opening our eyes, putting our antennas up, and paying attention to how we are living. The word translated pay attention could also be translated. uh, It's this idea of circumspection. It's this idea that as Christians you should inspect the terrain before you so that as you are walking, as you are living, you don't stumble and bumble your way through. You, circ- you be about circumspection, inspecting the terrain around you so that you know where to put your feet and where to move and why you want to move in one direction and not the other. That's the idea behind this idea of pay careful attention. I learned this the hard way again last week, or maybe it's towards the end of the week before, but I, uh, we've been staying at the Hudson's house, and I don't know that terrain very well. And I was out in the yard playing wiffle ball with my son, and he was hitting the wiffle ball, and, and we were having a good time in the yard. Well, he hit the wiffle ball through a gate that was open that is shared by the Hudson's and their neighbor. And the gate was open, so I didn't think anything of it. I saw the ball hit in this direction. I had my eyes on the ball, and I knew where to go to get it. And so I'm just kind of moving swiftly to get this ball. Well, apparently the neighbor uh, attached a metal rod at the top of this gate so that although the gate is open, there's still this metal rod that's firmly attached to this pathway. 
And apparently their kid likes to do pull-ups, and so he attached it so that their kids could do that. And, and so I'm just running for the ball. I'm not paying attention to where I'm going. I'm not inspecting the terrain at all. And I drill my head on this bar, and it drives my glasses into my face, cutting my nose and laying me out. It was so painful. Gave me a headache for the next 24 to 36 hours. It ruined the rest of the time with my son because I couldn't see straight to continue playing wiffle ball. So it was something that could have been prevented had I just slowed down and looked around. Well, Paul is saying essentially spiritually this is the same thing. You can avoid a lot of harm if you just learn to slow down. And you just learn to look around. You circumspect the terrain of life and you figure out, okay, where, where, what is harmful to me? What is a potential threat to my walk with Christ and my intimacy with Jesus, my joy with Jesus? You start identifying those things so that you know what to avoid and where to go as you are paying careful attention to how you are, to how you are living. But then he goes on. He says, not only do you want to pay careful attention, he says, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So he moves from this idea of paying attention to living with intention, to living on purpose. He says, let's make the most of our time because the days are evil. That's an interesting phrase. He says, I want you to live with an intentionality. I want you to live on, on purpose because the days are evil. Essentially what he's getting after there is that he's reminding us that life in a fallen world, even for a Christian, life in a fallen world is always subject to entropy. Your spirituality, your spiritual health is always subject to entropy, meaning there's no such thing as a neutral position. There's no such thing as an idle position. A follower of Jesus is either drawing near to the Lord in worship and in adoration and in faith, or a follower of Jesus is drifting away from the Lord. There is no idleness. You're always moving. So Paul is saying make the most of your time. Live with an intentionality. Take your relation, own your relationship with the Lord and don't forget about it. Because if you, get, if you shift into a neutral position or you think that you are, you're going to drift away. It's kind of like going swimming at the ocean, in the ocean at the beach. If you don't root your feet in the sand and if you don't pay attention to where your towel is on the beach, if you're just hanging out there mindlessly, over time the current's going to drift you further and further down the shore and you're going to look up and not know exactly where you are in relation to where you're supposed to be. Well, this is the dynamic here where Paul's saying, look, make the most of your time, redeem the time, live on purpose, live with an intentionality. Because if you're not drawing near to the Lord, you will drift away from the Lord. And so he's warning us here. He's saying, redeem the time, pay attention, live with intention. And he wants us to do this so that you and I don't wake up one day and realize we've wasted our lives. To wake up one day and realize, you know, what have I been giving my time to? Have I matured in my faith at all? Have I contributed to the kingdom of God at all? He's not wanting us to waste our time or waste our days. So he's saying, look, pay attention, live with intention. And, and there are some great ways that we can learn to do this. I'm learning how to do this a little bit from Bryant Jones. Uh, Bryant Jones, of course, is our executive pastor who blesses our church in a variety of ways, leading us in music and missional communities and all types of administrative dynamics. Well, he and I are different in more ways than one. Um, and <laughs> he, he's a type A personality. He's a guy who he'll wear slacks to the office. I wear sweats to the office. It's, it's a big contrast between us. But he's also a guy who uh, he color coordinates his calendar. 
every day, if you look at his calendar, it's going to be color-coordinated with all the slots allocated to something meaningful, to something purposeful, to something intentional. Now, I see that, and I start to sweat. I see that, and I get stressed out, not sure what, I, what to make of that, but, but he's doing that because it's his effort of trying to live with intentionality. He wants to make the most of his time. He, he wants to make sure he's contributing to the kingdom on a daily basis, that he's contributing to other people's flourishing on a daily basis. He wants to make sure that he's caring for his family and he's follow, spending time with Jesus and he's doing these things with great intentionality and with great purpose. Now, I will probably never color coordinate my calendar, but I can learn from Bryant how to live with more intentionality than what I'm doing now. And live on purpose so that I can make the most of the time that I'm given in this world. Because we don't know how much time we actually have in this world. So we don't want to waste the time that we are given. We want to maximize it, redeem it. One of the ways that I do this in my own life and in my own walk with Christ is, so I'll wake up in the morning and usually before I go about my days, I'll, I'll try to just lay in bed a little longer to, to start praying and And I'll start thinking about scripture. I'll pull up an app on my phone and I'll read a passage of scripture. I'll start thinking about that. And then I'll let that give me, uh, turn my attention to prayer. And and I'll start a conversation with the Lord there in my bed before I get up, having to get ready to take Delaney to school. And, And I'll start a conversation with the Lord. But something I started practicing several years ago now is that as I start to talk to the Lord in the morning, as you guys know that when a Christian prays, you know the prayer is over when they say amen. Uh, so if you're praying with other people that say amen, that's when you can kind of, okay, you can relax a little bit because you, you can just breathe a little better, whatever the case may be, make a little noise, whatever. Well, in my prayer life in the mornings, I don't say amen. I'll start my conversation with the Lord, and then I'll get up and I'll go about my day, and I won't draw that conversation to a close. And in my mind, what that does is that gets me thinking consciously about the presence of God. It helps me think I'm in a conversation with Jesus that's not going to end. That everywhere I go, Jesus is with me. I have his ear. I'm trying to listen to his voice as I go about my day, as I meditate upon his word and do all the things that I'm doing. I'm doing so with a, with a frame of mind that says my conversation with the Lord hasn't ended. And I'll just live my life kind of in that open-ended way, going about my day, and then I'll go home at night and I'll lay down and I'll put my head on the pillow and I'll thank God for whatever I'm grateful for that day. And I'll vent about whatever I need to vent about to the Lord that day. And, and then I'll draw the conversation to a close saying amen as I drift off to sleep. It's just my way of trying to live with a bit of intentionality to make the most of the time that we are privileged with the opportunity to talk to the Lord every day. So let's talk to the Lord. We're privileged every day to hear from God. We have the scriptures. So let's listen to God every day, making the most of the time because the days are evil. But then he goes on. He says, so don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Now, when it comes to the Lord's will, Paul's already been clear about what God's will is in the book of Ephesians. So I don't want you to take that phrase, the Lord's will, and apply it in a very narrow, overly personal kind of way. I want you to understand what the Lord's will is in the big picture because Paul's already been clear about this. He's not necessarily talking about you understanding which decision you should make between two job options. He's not necessarily talking about you understanding who you should marry or who you should not marry. He's he's not talking about the Lord's will in that personalized sense. He's talking about the Lord's will in a very big sense, grand scheme of things. If you turn back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, you'll see this. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, this is what we read. It says, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time. Here it is. To bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Meaning the Lord's will ultimately is to harmonize heaven and earth. The Lord's will ultimately is to bring everything into union and harmony and communion with the reality of Christ. That's God's big plan. That's his big purpose. This is why Jesus would teach the disciples in Matthew chapter 6, saying, when you pray, I want you to pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want you to harmonize heaven and earth. That's God's big purpose. And when you and I understand that, all of a sudden we're free to engage the smaller narratives of our lives in a way that would honor God. Meaning we're free to live our lives without anxiety, stressing, okay, I want to do God's will. I'm not sure what God's will is between these two job options. Both options are good. Both would provide for me. Both would allow me to help other people. And, and I'm weighing these options. And, and then you stress. And you start saying, okay, I have these two God, good options. But if I choose wrongly, that's going to sabotage the Lord's will for my life. And that's such a narcissistic way of thinking. It's such an American dream way of thinking that is utterly foreign to the scriptures and the categories of God's will that we are privileged to live in light of as followers of Jesus. And so we want to be set free this afternoon so we're not living stressed out. We're not living anxiously. We're not living with a disrupted soul because we don't know what the Lord's will is. No, we're going to gather with the church regularly so we can be reminded of God's big picture. We're going to gather with the church regularly so we can understand what the Lord's will is on the big scheme of things. Now, I do believe that God has plans and purposes that are particular to a person's story and journey that he's working in and through our lives in specific kinds of ways. I just don't think we should sweat that stuff as much as we do. I believe if you give yourself to the 95% of God's will that you already know you should be doing as a Christian... Obeying the things that are clear-cut in the scriptures, following God's will with the hope of all that he's going to do in the future. The 5% that's unique to you will take care of itself. The 5% that is unique to you is not going to be sabotaged by your poor ability to make a decision. It's not going to be sabotaged by any of that. So there's peace and joy. The world is a big playground for Christians to play on. And we don't always have to fret and stress and struggle through every single decision. Well, is this God's will? Is this God's will? Is this God's will? Well, if you know that God's will is to bring everything into submission to Jesus, then you submit yourself to Jesus and just make a decision. And you can trust him with the results. You're not going to sabotage the Lord's will for your life. So you can live with a bit of freedom and confidence. You can live an anxious, free life when you begin to think about God's will in these kinds of ways. And so when we gather together, we're gathering to learn how to do this. We're being reminded of the realities of the gospel, the hope of the gospel, so that we can understand what the Lord's will is. So we gather to be refreshed in these ways. Because over the course of a week, our, our lives can get out of alignment, like a car that is out of alignment, and it just kind of drifts in one direction that it's not supposed to go to. You have to take it in, get it tuned up, get it set right, so we can go straight once again. Well, if you spend too long of your Christianity detached from the family of faith or detached from the gathering of believers, you're going to find your life being knocked out of alignment. And you're going to drift in directions that God never intended you to drift in. And so we want to gather regularly with one another so that our lives can be realigned 
realigned according to the will of God that, is, that has been revealed to all of us in the scriptures. But then he goes on, says, not only do you want to gather to learn how to walk in wisdom, you want to gather, so I love this portion, you want to gather regularly so that you can learn to walk in wonder. Not only do you walk in wisdom as a Christian, not only do we walk in wisdom as a church, we want to walk in wonder. And this is what he's getting after in verse 18. He says, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. He's talking about walking in wonder, and he does it in kind of a surprising way. He picks up this idea of alcohol, and he says, do not get drunk with wine because that leads to reckless living. Now, that shouldn't surprise us that he kind of goes there because all throughout the Bible, folly and foolishness is attached to drunkenness. Drunkenness is a major metaphor for a life of foolishness and a life of folly. So it makes sense that he would go from talking about wisdom to talking about drunkenness. But what is surprising is that he attaches to the end of this sentence being filled with the Spirit. And so he's contrasting, in a sense, what it means to be drunk with what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a bizarre thing to do, but if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, just think about alcohol for a moment. What does alcohol do to the human mind? You know that alcohol is a depressant. And as a depressant, it means that when you consume too much alcohol, it shuts down portions of your brain. It removes your inhibitions so that you can do things or that you're willing to do things you would never do if you were sober. Drunk people are brave people. Drunk people are courageous people. They have no inhibitions because alcohol has depressed their minds. And, and in many ways, alcohol has shrunken their perception of reality. And because reality has shrunk and they're not thinking about consequences, they're not thinking about shame, they're not thinking about embarrassment, they're living life here, it's described as reckless, but you could also say they're do, living life in a bold fashion, a, in some ways a courageous fashion, doing things they would not naturally do. So that's what alcohol does to us. It removes our inhibitions, in a sense, by shrinking reality. But what does the Holy Spirit do for the Christian? The Holy Spirit, when he fills up a Christian, he too is seeking to remove inhibitions. He too is seeking to empower us to live with courage and boldness and veracity. But he doesn't do it by depressing our minds and shrinking reality. He does it by expanding our understanding of what's real. He does it by blowing our minds with the truth and the bigness of gospel realities. He expands our perspective. And when the Spirit is expanding our perspective, inhibitions are removed. And we're not living lives of fear or anxiety. We're living lives with courage and boldness and faith. There's a beautiful picture of this in 2, Corinthians chapter, 2 Kings chapter 6. It's a story about a guy named Elisha. Elisha was a prophet who was friends with the king of Israel. And he was advising the king of Israel because the king of Israel was in a precarious situation. Israel's enemies had surrounded them and was ready to just squash them, to level them. And he was frightened. He didn't know what to do. And Elisha looks to the king and he begins to pray for the king. And listen to what he prays. In 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, it says, Then Elisha prayed, Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. Open his eyes and let him see. Increase his understanding of reality. And then look what happened. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and, and he saw the mountain was covered with the horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
His eyes were open so that he could see the army of the Lord, so that he could see these angelic beings encircling God's people, ready to come in and deliver God's people. The people of Israel were going to be delivered in that day. And the Lord opened the king's eyes so that he could see it. This is essentially what the Holy Spirit does for the Christian. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, he broadens our perspective, gives us a better understanding of reality so that we can live with courage. And our inhibitions, our fears and our anxieties can be removed. Now you think about this, the Spirit doing the exact opposite that alcohol does. And and you just want to ask yourself, you know, what spirit are you filling up on, right? When you have a hard week, what spirit are you turning to? Are you turning to a depressant or are you turning to a catalyst? Are you turning to something that's going to shrink your understanding of reality or are you turning to something that's going to increase your understanding of reality? This is the contrast of verse 18. So he says to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's an interesting connection between the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians. These two letters are written by the same guy to different people at different times, but, but there's a lot of overlap, a lot of continuity between these two letters. And there's actually a whole passage in Colossians that reads a lot like the passage that we're reading tonight in Ephesians. And so if you're wondering, well, what does it mean practically to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What are some things that I can do for this to happen in my life? What do I, where do I turn to? And well, if you look over at Colossians chapter 3, you'll get an idea of, what, of how you and I can cooperate with these realities. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. It says there, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. In all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Essentially, he's saying the same thing in Colossians 3.16 is what we're reading in Ephesians chapter 5. The big difference is this. The big difference is, rather than saying be filled with the Holy Spirit, he's saying let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. So what he is saying, that if you want to be a spirit-filled Christian, you need to get the word inside of you. You need to take the word of Christ into your soul and let it dwell there. Give it a home in your heart. Because the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures are a powerful tag team in our lives. And when we are filling up on the word, letting the word dwell in us, dwell in us richly, the Holy Spirit is going to swell up within us. You want to know how to be filled with the Spirit. Take in the word of Christ regularly and frequently. Let it have a home in your in your soul. So we want to take the word in. Another reason why we gather together and study the scriptures like we do is so that this can happen. It's so that the word of Christ may dwell richly among us. Now, if I'm doing my job as a pastor of this church, when you leave here, you're not going to be leaving quoting me. You're going to be leaving feasting on the word of Christ, thinking about the realities of the gospel and the will of God as it relates to Jesus and the hope that Jesus gives to your life. And when your soul is feasting on that, you will be invigorated to live a life that is wise and to live a life of wonder. So he says we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But then he goes on and he describes some things that happen when this occurs. How do you know that your life is being filled by the Holy Spirit? How do we know as a church we are being filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, he lists some things beginning in verse 19. He starts by saying, speaking When this happens, we start speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So he begins to talk a little bit about the gathering of the church. And it's a unique passage because he's talking about speaking and he's talking about singing. And he says, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, saying, I want you to speak words of wonder into one another's lives. 
Those three words, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we don't have to draw a sharp distinction between each one of those. Essentially, they all communicate the same dynamic of words of wonder. These are words that convey the reality of who God is and the reality of what God has done into the life of the believer. We want to be speaking those into one another's lives. Now, I'm given an opportunity almost every summer to go and speak at these different student camps and conferences, uh, different parts of the country. And when I do, uh, it's always a, a unique environment for me, especially now, because uh, I'll go into these rooms where hundreds and hundreds of students will be gathering to worship Jesus. They'll a big stage with a big band, lots of lights, lots of smoke, all these kinds of things. And, and I walk in, and I, I don't really know where to go because I can't see anything in front of me. The room is so dark, and the kids can't see each other either, and, and they love to kind of create this ambiance, and so they make it very, very dark, and they're hoping to create a sense of intimacy, and they're hoping that the students will lose their inhibitions and just be free in that moment to worship and do all these things, but I can't help but think every summer we're missing something. If I can't see who I'm worshiping with, am I really worshiping? Am I missing the mark of what Ephesians 5 is calling us to? There's a sense in which we should see each other as we worship because we need to speak to each other as we worship. Because when we worship together, we're not just talking to the Lord, we're talking to one another. We're not just singing God's praises, we're speaking ones of words of wonder into one another's lives. And so we're trying to create space for you guys not just to come and be ministered to, but for you guys to come and minister to one another. That you would engage one another in meaningful conversations to encourage each other with the realities of the gospel. This is why our prayer ministry team, led by Emily Shutsky, is kickstarting, rebooting itself tonight. And her and her team have prayer ministry lanyards. And you're going to see them later on um, scattered throughout the room, ready and willing to engage in conversations and in prayers with you and for you. And I would encourage you to engage that team and be engaged by that team. And I would encourage you just to be extemporaneous in that. Go to others and just start praying with people and talking to people. Let this be a time where you're not just being ministered to, but a time in which you are ministering to one another. This means that as you get ready to worship every week with us, you should do so with your eyes wide open. And you should do so with some intentionality. And you should do so with an understanding of the will of God. Meaning the first time you talk to Jesus shouldn't be when you show up to hear at 4 o'clock on Sundays. And the first time you listen to Jesus shouldn't be the, first, shouldn't be the moment you step into here at 4 o'clock. No, you want to be preparing your heart and your mind for this moment so that when you gather with other Christians, you're a gathering not just to be served but to serve, not just to be blessed but to bless others. And so you want to pray, Holy Spirit, fill me up so that whenever I gather with the church today, I have something to contribute. I have a word of encouragement to share with someone. I have a prayer that I can pray for someone. I, I want to be present with people in a way that is good for them. And, and I trust that they're going to be present in that moment in ways that is good, that's good for me. So when we gather together, we're not just gathering to talk to the Lord. We're gathering to talk to one another. And so you want to speak words of wonder into one another's lives. But then he goes on speaking to one another in these ways. Then he says, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. And so, of course, this is what we do on Sundays. Churches sing. Churches sing different words of wonder to the Lord, and they do it together. It's a beautiful thing. Now, when you look at that phrase, sing with your heart to the Lord, or making music with your heart to the Lord, what Paul is calling for there, he's saying that he wants the deepest parts of who we are to be engaged in that moment. The deepest parts of who we are needs to be engaged in the worship of the Lord. 
Our affections should be stirred and steered towards Jesus as we sing by what we are singing. We know this because earlier in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul would pray a prayer about this dynamic in our lives. He would say in Ephesians 3 verse 16, I pray that he, he, that is God, may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. In other words, he's praying for our reality to grow, our understanding of what's true to be expanded, but he's praying for it because it's needed. He's praying for it because it doesn't come naturally. If your affections aren't stirred when you are gathering with Christians on a regular basis, I want you to know that on one hand, that's kind of normal because your affections won't naturally be stirred towards Jesus. Your affections aren't naturally going to be stirred towards the reality of who God is. This is why Paul prays for it. And this is why we pray for it. Because we need God to work this within us. We need God to open up the eyes of our hearts so that we may see the depth and the width and the length and the breadth of the love of God for us. So Paul prays for this because he knows that the affections aren't stirred naturally. And this is another reason why when we gather, we want to be praying this is another reason before we gather, we want to be praying, praying for worship that will stir our affections on a regular basis. So if you're not getting much out of our worship gatherings on a regular basis, let me encourage you to change your approach to this time. Don't just show up. Show up prepared. Show up prayed up. Show up having thought about Jesus and what he has done for you before you step into this room. Prepare your heart for the time in which you're going to spend with other Christians on Sunday. As you are preparing yourself, I, I believe you will start getting more out of these times than you may currently be getting right now. But then he goes on. Not only does he remind us of singing and having our affection stirred, he says, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a challenging sentence. It's a challenging sentence because should I thank God for folks breaking into my house last week? Should I thank God for people breaking into my basement and pillaging it? Should I thank God that my wife's wedding ring is no longer with us? Should I be thanking God for those types of things? I don't believe I should because I don't think we are to thank God for evil and we are to thank God for sin. What I believe we thank God for, and it is something we can thank God for in everything, is that we can thank God for being God even though thieves break into our homes. We can thank God for being God no matter what is taking place in our lives and no matter what turmoil is boiling around us. We can thank God for being God in every moment of every day, in every situation, and in every circumstance. We can thank God for being God. So we don't thank God for sin and we don't thank God for evil, but we do thank God for being God no matter what. And nowhere do you see this more clearly than when you thank God for the cross of Christ. When you are thanking God for the cross of Christ, why are you doing that? Well, you're not thanking him because of the evil that, was, that necessitated the cross. You're not thanking him because of the sin that made the death of Jesus necessary. You're thanking God for being God in and through the cross of Christ. And you're thanking God for having the ability to bring good out of evil, to bring good out of sin, to bring redemption out of the ruin of Jesus on the cross. So when you gather together on Sundays, you're being reminded of 
of these realities so that you can thank God for being God in everything. We do this every week when we go to the Lord's Supper. Another word for the Lord's Supper is Eucharist, and Eucharist means giving thanks, which is why when you go to the table, you're going to the table to thank God for sending Jesus to live and to die for you. And you're thanking Jesus for rising from the grave, and you're anticipating his return every time you go to the table. So when you go to the table, you're engaging in thanksgiving. It is an act of gratitude to partake in the Lord's Supper. And so when you go here in a moment, I want you to go with that mentality. And then there's one more phrase that we're not going to spend a lot of time on because we're going to look at it more closely next week. But the final phrase here is submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, this is one of those phrases that's going to cause eyebrows to raise. And there's a word here that everybody hates. It's the word submit or submitting. And the reason why I think this is pushed back against is because we haven't done a good job understanding verse 21. We tend to mess this verse up because rather than saying submitting to one another in the fear of Christ, we just want to drop the two and say submit one another in the fear of Christ. We drop the two and rather than submitting to one another, we just want to submit each other. And this is why marriages fall apart. This is why families are dysfunctional because everybody in the room, the house turns into an octagon. And everybody's trying to, and a person's trying to submit the other. This is why churches go sideways when you come in and instead of submitting to one another in acts of love and service and devotion for the good of those around you, you come in and you try to submit the other. And the church turns into a jujitsu match where you are putting people in the headlock, grappling with one another, trying to make them submit. But this passage isn't saying submit each other. It's saying submit to one another. And the only way you can do that is if you do it for yourself. Meaning it is not my responsibility to make you submit in your Christian faith. It is my responsibility to submit myself towards you so that I am living and loving and serving and blessing you. And it is your responsibility to submit yourself to me so that you are loving and serving and blessing me. This was Jesus' example in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, there's a moment where Jesus and the disciples are sitting in a room and and he's preparing them for what he's about to do on the cross. And he takes a moment. He looks around the room and he sees all the disciples whose feet haven't been washed yet. And he says, okay, nobody's washing anybody's feet. I'm going to do that in this moment. So rather than protesting and saying, hey, look, somebody needs to wash the feet in this room. Jesus says, no, I'm going to take it upon myself and I'm going to submit myself to you by coming to you and cleaning your feet for you. Listen to the passage. John 13, verse 14, so if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. In other words, if Jesus would submit himself in such a way, we should be willing to submit ourselves too. And submission shouldn't be something that we're afraid of. It should be something that we value because submission was part of who Jesus was. And it was a part of what Jesus did. And so as Christians, we gladly submit ourselves to one another in whatever roles and whatever respects that we may have or are given in this life, in this world. And this is where Paul will go next in the rest of this chapter, and we'll look at that a little more next week. But what I want us to do right now is I want us to take some time, and I want us to, to worship together in these ways. I want us to speak to one another words of wonder. I want us to sing and make music with our hearts to the Lord. I want us to give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus.